You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey, y'all. Spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. The Titanic was infamously touted as the unsinkable ship, a title that unfortunately came to be bitterly ironic. But in the wake of its sinking, that title came to be associated not with the ship itself, but with one of its most famous passengers, the unsinkable Molly Brown. At first, Brown had been so absorbed in the book she was reading when the ship hit the iceberg that she thought little of the commotion steadily growing outside. But that commotion only grew louder, and when Brown was finally compelled to emerge from her cabin, she was met with a chaotic scene. Chunks of ice had fallen onto the ship's decks, and she later recalled seeing a man, quote, whose face was blanched, his eyes protruding, wearing the look of a haunted creature, unquote. Gasping, he warned her to grab her life vest. When Brown made it to the lifeboats, however, she refused to board. Instead, she chose to remain behind and help other passengers get to safety, prioritizing their well-being above her own. In fact, the only reason she eventually found herself on Lifeboat 6 was because a crew member forced her onto it, dropping her four feet into the vessel as it began to lower off the side of the Titanic. But even then, Brown's desire to help had not been snuffed out, and her most storied moments were yet to come. And Molly Brown was just one of the passengers in the Titanic who proved, in the face of unimaginable dread, to be a hero. A designation she shares with people like Second Officer Charles Lightoller, First Class Passenger Noel Leslie, Head Chef Charles Joggin, First Class Passenger Colonel Archibald Gracie IV, Head Engineer Joseph Bell, Telegraphist Jack Phillip, First Class Passenger Lucille Carter, and even the members of the Titanic's band who famously played on till the bitter end. Today we'll be taking a closer look at their stories and the moments of unfathomable bravery that unfolded in the ship's final harrowing hours. You're listening to History Uncovered, brought to you by the digital publisher All That's Interesting, where we explore the uncharted corners of the natural world and the world past. I'm All That's Interesting staff writer Austin Harvey. Today, we're continuing our six-part series on the sinking of the RMS Titanic. This is the Titanic Part 4, Heroism and Despair in the Ship's Final Moments. Until the cold and bitter end, the crew of the Titanic put their passengers first. 
they funneled crowds towards lifeboats, prioritizing the safety of women and children. This women and children first rule does, in fact, have a name. It's called the Birkenhead Drill, named for the HMS Birkenhead, one of the first iron-hauled paddle steamers in service. The Birkenhead had been transporting troops from England to South Africa to fight in the frontier war in 1852, when it made a brief stop in Cape Town. It set sail once again on the 25th of February, with around 634 men, women, and children on board under perfect conditions, blue skies, and calm seas. But the next day, disaster struck, and the Birkenhead rammed into an uncharted rock, flooding its lower barracks and trapping hundreds of soldiers below deck. Realizing there was little hope of rescue, Captain Robert Salmond ordered the lifeboats to be lowered with instructions to evacuate the women and children first. The Birkenhead drill never became an official part of maritime law, but it was a widely respected chivalric ideal, employed aboard countless vessels, especially after being immortalized in a poem by Rudyard Kipling in 1893, the year before he published The Jungle Book. The Birkenhead drill also had the benefit of lessening the delay in deciding who would be rescued first, which is why 2nd Officer Charles Lightoller employed the drill when the Titanic started to go down, and many women and children who had been second or third class passengers were saved as a result. Lightoller saw the Birkenhead drill through to the end, even he himself never boarded a lifeboat. Instead, he stayed with the ship as it started to sink and realized he had two choices jump into the freezing water and fight for his life, or let the ship drag him under. Lightoller chose the former. Striking the water was like a thousand knives being driven into one's body, Lightoller later said. The temperature of the water at that moment was 28 degrees. When he emerged, he spotted the ship's crow's nest and instinctively began to swim towards it, then remembered it would be unwise to swim back to a sinking vessel and the drain-like downward suction it created. Then, right on cue, the ship's forward ventilators flooded, and the force of water sucked Lightoller under, pinning him against the grating. But just then, a blast of hot air from the ventilator launched him upward through the water and all the way to the surface. He was like a rag doll, helplessly pushed and pulled about by forces far greater than he could even comprehend. In fact, after shooting up to the surface, the suction then quickly pulled him back under once again, only for him to resurface once more. But this time, he came to realize that he couldn't swim away properly because of the weight of the Webley revolver in his pocket. He discarded the gun, then spotted a collapsible boat from the ship with several survivors clinging to it. He grabbed onto a rope at the front, and the collapsible was knocked further from the sinking ship when the Titanic's forward funnel broke free. By some miracle, Charles Lightoller had survived. Other members of the crew weren't so lucky. What impressed me at the time that my eyes beheld the horrible scene was a thin, light gray, smoky vapor that hung like a pall a few feet above the broad expanse of sea that was covered with a mass of tangled wreckage. That it was a tangible vapor and not a product of my imagination, I feel well assured. It may have been caused by smoke or steam rising to the surface around the area where the ship had sunk. At any rate, it produced a supernatural effect, and the pictures I had seen by Dante and the description I had read in my Virgil of the infernal regions of Charon and the river Lethe were then uppermost in my thoughts. Add to this, within the area described, which was as far as my eyes could reach, there arose to this sky the most horrible sounds ever heard by mortal man, except by those of us who survived this terrible tragedy. The agonizing cries of death from over a thousand throats, the wails and groans of the suffering, the shrieks of the terror-stricken and the awful gaspings for breath of those in the last throes of drowning. None of us will ever forget to our dying day. Colonel Archibald Gracie IV
There were two men responsible for sending SOS messages to nearby ships as the Titanic was sinking. Their names were Harold Bride and Jack Phillips. The message they sent out read SOS, Titanic calling. We have struck ice and require immediate assistance. It was thanks to them that a nearby British ship named the Carpathia was ultimately able to arrive and take survivors on board, including Bride, who was pulled underneath an overturned collapsible boat when the Titanic went under. Bride clung to the boat through the night until he was rescued by the Carpathia, but his colleague didn't share his fate. Even as water rushed into the ship's wireless room and Captain Edward Smith relieved the men of duty, Phillips refused to step away from the communication equipment. He was determined to send out as many distress calls as he could, knowing it would cost him his life. Bride recounted the tale of his friend's bravery to the crew of the Carpathia just after being rescued, saying, quote, He was a brave man. I learned to love him that night, and I'd suddenly felt for him a great reverence to see him standing there sticking to his work while everybody else was raging about. I will never live to forget the work Phillips did for the last awful 15 minutes. From aft came the tunes of the ship's band playing the ragtime tune Autumn. Phillips ran aft, and that was the last I ever saw of him alive. End quote. Brides is not the only account to make mention of the Titanic's band, which famously played on stoically as the ship sank and the passengers succumbed to terror. Reportedly, their final song that evening was the hymn, Nearer, My God, to Thee. One unnamed second-class passenger was quoted as saying, Many brave things were done that night, but none were more brave than those done by men playing minute after minute as the ship settled quietly lower and lower in the sea. The music they played served alike as their own immortal requiem and their right to be recalled on the scrolls of undying fame. Below deck, the Titanic's chief engineer, Joseph Bell, worked with his team to slow the speed of the ship's sinking as much as possible. They knew that if the frigid Atlantic waters made contact with any of the ship's boilers, the resulting explosion could have caused even more damage to the ship and caused it to sink faster. So they made a sacrifice, remaining in the engine room knowing that they would die so as many people as possible could make it to safety. Two years after the Titanic sank, at the unveiling of the Titanic Engineers Memorial, Sir Archibald Denny said of the ship's engineers, quote, They must have known that pumping could do no more than delay the final catastrophe, yet they stuck pluckily to their duty, end quote. There's debate, however, about the bravery, or lack thereof, of Captain Edward Smith. Before he captained the Titanic, Smith also captained its sister ship, the Olympic, which also suffered a catastrophe at sea when it collided with the British warship HMS Hawk the previous September and suffered damage to its propeller shafts and other parts. Parts which were then pulled from the Titanic as it was being built in order to repair the Olympic, while also delaying the launch of the Titanic. Smith had also been the captain of another ship, the RMS Adriatic, and gave a now dreadfully ironic interview to the New York Times when he was handed command of that vessel in 1907. The interview has been quoted countless times since then, as Smith infamously said, quote, I cannot imagine any condition which would cause a ship to founder. I cannot conceive of any vital disaster happening to this vessel. Modern shipbuilding has gone beyond that, end quote. And when the Titanic, the epitome of modern shipbuilding, indeed suffered a vital disaster, Smith went down with his ship, but accounts of his actions during those dreadful final hours differ to this day. 
One survivor, a fireman named Harry Sr., said he saw Smith holding a child up above his head, keeping them out of the freezing water in his final moments. Others recalled that Smith urged the lifeboats onwards even as he froze in the biting Atlantic waters. One passenger by the name of Robert Williams Daniel was quoted as saying, Captain Smith was the biggest hero I ever saw. He stood on the bridge and shouted through a megaphone trying to make himself heard. Yet there are some who blame Smith for the disaster itself, claiming he had been reckless in the moments leading up to the collision with the iceberg and was therefore directly responsible for the tragedy, that the ship had been traveling too fast, or that Captain Smith had ignored seven warnings about ice in the water that evening. Some have even said that Smith was frozen with fear and indecisiveness during the sinking, leaving most of the work to Charles Lightoller. The last documented moment Captain Smith was seen alive, Stuart Edward Brown, said he saw the captain bid adieu to his men on the lifeboat, saying, Well, boys, do your best for the women and children, and look out for yourselves. Afterwards, he walked on his own to the bridge, and five minutes later, the ship went under. But however heroic the Titanic's crew may, or in some cases may not, have been, the passengers of the Titanic proved to be some of the most selfless and brave heroes, helping to save hundreds of lives in the ship's final hours. Are you interested in the parts of history that remain a mystery? Do you want to learn more about the historical myths and misconceptions used to prop up false beliefs today? The podcast Historical Blindness delves into all of these topics, sharing puzzling tales from the past and examining hoaxes, conspiracy theories, and misremembered events that provide insight into modern politics and religion. Find out what's real and what's not when it comes to famous conspiracy claims like those surrounding the notorious assassinations of Martin Luther King Jr. and JFK, and secret societies like the Illuminati. Discover astonishing parallels to modern politics and consider some of the most outlandish claims about religion. What can the false claim that AIDS was a U.S. bioweapon tell us about the COVID lab leak hypothesis? Why do some people claim that all religion can be traced back to the ancient use of psychedelic mushrooms? Join host Nathan Lloyd as he attempts to shed some light on historical blind spots and fight the misinformation that permeates many people's historical worldview. Find and subscribe to Historical Blindness wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts or visit historicalblindness.com. Check out newer episodes first and then go back and binge the rest of the catalog. Perhaps no Titanic passenger is as famous as Margaret Brown, a socialite and philanthropist from Colorado soon to become better known as the unsinkable Molly Brown. She had been reading a book in her cabin the moment the Titanic crashed into the iceberg, and though as a woman she was granted a spot on a lifeboat almost immediately after the evacuation got underway, she promptly declined the offer. She later recalled, quote, As I went on the deck when the boats were being lowered, I found many opportunities to be useful, and I was glad to be. The less you think of yourself at such times, the better off you are, unquote. Brown did eventually find her way onto a lifeboat, but not of her own volition. A crew member had to force her onto lifeboat six, and once aboard, she refused to sit idly by. The lifeboat she happened to be on was also boarded by none other than the ship's quartermaster, Robert Hitchens, a man with whom Molly Brown quickly realized she would not get along. 
The lifeboat had plenty of space, yet Hitchens refused to go back for more survivors, saying there's no use going back because there's only a lot of stiffs there. It's our lives now, not theirs. In response, Brown threatened to throw him overboard. Hitchens nevertheless got his way, and their lifeboat did not turn around to take on more survivors. But Brown managed to step up as the de facto leader of the rescue vessel. She suggested to Hitchens that the women should be allowed to help row if only so that they could stay warm. Hitchens hesitated, but Brown didn't wait for an answer. She handed out oars and overheard Hitchens muttering to himself about how they were unlikely to survive. She told him, Keep it to yourself if you feel that way. For the sake of these women and children, be a man. We have a smooth sea and a fighting chance. The sounds of people drowning are something that I cannot describe to you, and neither can anyone else. It's the most dreadful sound, and there is a terrible silence that follows it. Ava Hart, seven-year-old Titanic survivor. Nearby, on another lifeboat making its way through the frigid water on this moonless night, was the British Countess Noelle Leslie, better known as Lady Roths, who likewise took control of the lifeboat she found herself on. Lady Roths took control of the boat's tiller, rowed, and even took the helm for more than an hour, stepping down only to console a newlywed whose husband went down with the ship. And even when their boat was rescued by their Carpathia, Lady Roths continued to provide comfort and care for the others, looking after women and children, and sewing clothes for the babies who'd survived. As each of these women took charge aboard their lifeboats, Colonel Archibald Gracie IV of Alabama was helping Charles Lightoller usher others off of the Titanic and into the lifeboats, holding firmly to the Birkenhead drill and putting women and children first. Gracie was, in fact, the last man aboard the Titanic to be rescued, and even then, just barely. The collapsible boat that he and several other men boarded overturned in the water, and the men had to cling to the underside throughout the night until the Carpathia arrived. Alas, Gracie, who had been in poor health prior, died of his injuries only a year and a half later. But before his death, Gracie also spoke highly of another passenger, John Jacob Astor IV, the richest man aboard the Titanic. The conduct of Colonel John Jacob Astor was deserving of the highest praise, Gracie said. The millionaire New Yorker devoted all his energies to saving his young bride, named Miss Force of New York, who was in delicate health. Colonel Astor helped us in our efforts to get her in the boat. I lifted her into the boat, and as she took her place, Colonel Astor requested permission of the second officer to go with her for her own protection. Astor was then denied permission to board the lifeboat with his young bride. He simply asked the officer for the boat's number, then turned his attention back to helping the other women and children board the boats. Colonel Astor never made it off the Titanic. Their story, however, stands in stark contrast to that of William and Lucille Carter, she has historically been viewed as a hero of the Titanic, helping lead other women and children to safety, and though she initially claimed that her husband had been the one to lead her and her children to the lifeboats, in truth, he had simply warned them that the ship was sinking, then disappeared. This was made all the worse when Lucille saw him again the next day on the Carpathia, and all he said to her was, quote, that he had a jolly good breakfast and that he never thought Lucille would make it, end quote. Two years later, they divorced. A year after the couple split, newspapers reported that the grounds for the divorce were quote-unquote cruel and barbarous treatment, citing her ex-husband's lack of care on board the Titanic. In the end, Lucille Carter became a hero of the Titanic, and William Carter became a footnote in her story. In 
There was peace and the world had an even tenor to its way. Nothing was revealed in the morning, the trend of which was not known the night before. It seems to me that the disaster about to occur was the event that not only made the world rub its eyes and awake, but woke it with a start, keeping it moving at a rapidly accelerating pace ever since, with less and less peace, satisfaction, and happiness. To my mind, the world of today awoke, April 15, 1912. First Class Passenger, Jack B. Thayer But despite the heroic acts of people like Molly Brown, Charles Lightoller, Lucille Carter, Charles Jockin, and countless others, the tragedy of the Titanic was, of course, far too large for any band of heroes to surmount. In the end, the sinking took 1,517 lives, leaving just 706 survivors. But the story of the Titanic didn't end when the ship sunk below the surface of the North Atlantic. In the aftermath of this great tragedy, from the rescue to the media circus to the inquest, some of its most powerful and poignant stories emerged, along with some of its most haunting questions, which we will cover in the next episode, The Titanic Part 5, The Aftermath of History's Most Infamous Sinking. Thanks for listening to History Uncovered. I'm History Uncovered's producer, Kit Westneat. If you like the show, help others find us by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And be sure to follow the All That's Interesting and History Revealed pages on Facebook and Real History Uncovered on Instagram. Make sure you don't miss out on the new episodes and subscribe to the History Uncovered podcast. And keep up with our latest stories at allthatsinteresting.com. If you have a question about the show or just want to say hi, feel free to call us at 929-526-3029 or email us at podcast at allthatsinteresting.com. This podcast is part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Visit airwavemedia.com to listen and subscribe to their other fine shows like Legends of the Old West and Redacted History. Until next time, keep exploring.